4: really important
2: to sort of express solidarity globally.
4: It really is a deal by corporations
2: for corporations. Union forever defending our rights down with the blacklist. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program.
1: Solidarity Breakfast 730 to 9 AM Saturdays. 3CR, 855 AM streaming and 3CR Digital Podcast or Audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
2: Solidarity forever!
3: Hi everyone, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. Let's hope you're feeling a little more relaxed with the removal of strict lockdown arrangements here in Victoria. Today we are going to hear from a local who witnessed the attack on the One camp protecting the sacred trees near Ararat last week. We hear from Bob Broughton about the celebrations to mark the centenary of the Australian Communist Party. We hear a little about Halloween, followed by Kevin's roundup of the week. And we're going to finish with uh, the Australian human rights lawyer, Jennifer Robinson, who is talking on a webinar put on by the Media Entertainment Arts Alliance, MEAA, Julian Assange's uh, union. Uh, she's going to be talking about the uh, Julian Assange extradition hearings which are coming to their end in London. Hi, my
5: name's Travis from Larrakia Country, and I'm here to talk about the Reading, Writing Hotline. It's a service that helps adults who can't read and write as well as they'd like to. The number is one 300 655 6 Give them a call if you know somebody who needs help with reading and writing. It's never too late to learn, and it's easier than you think. one 300 655 6 one 300 655 The Reading, Writing, Hotline.
3: A 3CR supporter. Last week saw police swoop on the Jabberwung campsite set up to protect sacred trees in the way of a highway upgrade outside Ararat. Human rights and legal organisations condemning the police operation, the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, the Police Accountability Project, the Gratta Foundation, the Fitzroy Legal Service and Amnesty International and they were calling specifically and this is what they said in their media release, respect obligations under the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People including upholding cultural, environmental and spiritual rights and observing free prior informed consent relating to community calls to to stop the destruction of the sacred jabbarung trees ensure the human rights of the Dab Ruang activists are protected including access to legal services cultural rights and the right to protest immediate access for legal observers to monitor the police action targeting Jab Ruang activists and free access for journalists to cover the protest event an inquiry into police use of COVID-19 powers, particularly the discriminatory application of these powers, and that the Victorian government has a commitment to respecting the democratic right to protest and ensure restrictions on protest are in line with human rights standards proportionate, necessary and time-bound. By Thursday, the Supreme Court put a freeze on the highway works after the felling of the directions tree. I spoke to Alana. She's a local wildlife activist on Wednesday for an eyewitness account of the events at the Jabuwan camp.
6: These lightning raids over two days, enormous amount of taxpayer money um, invested in this to have their security set up for 24 hours a day patrolling these areas. They took down the directions tree um, out of spite. They say it's not significant, um, but they paraded it its body on the back of a truck up and down the highway and into the township of Ararat. So if they don't think that's significant, why would they do such a thing to horrify the, those of us who were just in shock? Um, that also had sugar gliders and other animals nesting in it. There were hollows in that tree. Now, um, if they follow protocol and also um, they have to do this, they have to put plastic around the trees um, that are habitat trees and leave that for 48 hours so the animals have a chance of getting out but not being able to get back in. So um, they hadn't done that with with this directions tree, which was, it was uh, it was sacred, it was beautiful. It's over 350 years old, it was magnificent. And they swooped in there, cut that down um, out of the blue. They did their raid, cleared the camp, cut that down and then did no more work in that area. So it was just out of spite and it was because they realised it was significant to the Jabberong and also to those of us who live
3: locally. And there are more trees to go. Have you got any idea why they uh, find it so necessary to disrupt these trees when they could possibly plan around this? (laughs) Have they given any...
6: Can you tell me? Because we've been fighting them now for five years. This road is going to go through pristine landscape um, with rock formations um, native flowers, native fauna and, and flora um, soaks um, water soaks beautiful. They're going to take out hills and they're going to fill valleys. They have to make two quarries to do the earthworks. The earthworks on this this project are just staggering for this twelve kilometre stretch. And as we've we've been asking the government for a review, the um, the EES the um, Environmental effects statement that MRPV are working on is badly outdated, hasn't been relooked at. It was false in the first place, and um, certainly not comprehensive. So this has been our argument all along. If they just built another two lanes on the current freeway, even even better for the Jabarong people. And once again, I cannot speak for them, but from what I've heard, if if they could just have a go slow 80k kilometer stretch past their land um, and even even put it as a tourist a tourist attraction with the you know there's a park over the other side of the road, a car park which people often use anyway and people could admire the grandfather tree and, and the, um, the mother tree and everything from the roadside and even make it a nice little tourist area. But this has been our argument all along. Their their plan, their project is flawed, um, but they're so arrogant and so stubborn that they just won't admit it, and they're just forging ahead regardless. And there's been this huge fight for the last two and a half years through court cases because they're just stubborn, and we won't let them destroy our landscape when it's just unnecessary for a safe road they can build a safe road that'll be narrower with less destruction but they refuse to do it or even talk about it or look at it and the government daniel andrews and the planning and roads minister are all held accountable here and there are even those who believe that um, daniel andrews isn't lifting the curfew in melbourne so that protesters can't come up and fight this road because he's he's determined to get it
3: done the police that uh, did the uh, raid the yesterday were they local were or were they reinforced by uh, no. police in the city from the city
6: yeah yeah they were brought from other places there were oh gosh there must have been 40 30 40 police cars brought up there were um, the wagons for taking people away um, no they were they were specialists police, they had black uniforms um, in black cars and I don't know where they came from but they were suddenly just whoomph, they were there and they surrounded the protesters in the camp um, a lot of us couldn't get in there because they lined up along the roadway and wouldn't let us cross the road to the camp so um, no, they've, they've come from probably from Melbourne and I mean how COVID safe is that <laughs> I don't know. Critical response unit,
3: that's what they'll be?
6: Probably, yes. You're probably right. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know where they've been over the two days, When whether they went down, down and up the highway, but they were there over the two days. They raided two of the Jabberong camps and then they did what we call the top camp yesterday, which is the one right on Western Highway. And on Monday was the day that they raided and took the
3: directions tree down. So do you know what's happened to the people that they've arrested? A lot of them were
6: re-released.
3: Um, some of them,
6: they, they checked everyone's ID to see if they came from Melbourne, if any of them had or if they were there, um, and a lot of people have been staying here you know the, the past there have been people at those camps for the two, last two years. so there's nothing to say that they haven't been here for two years so um, but if they did have a Melbourne address, they were told they had to leave the area um, and not come back. Some of them they just brought over to the other side of the road where we the protesters who weren't in camp were standing and cheering the others on. Um, and keeping an eye on everyone to make sure they were safe. Um, yeah, and some of them were told they had to leave the area altogether. Some were taken into Ararat to be processed.
3: So your group, uh, you 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 live there. You you're a local who. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, how did you get involved in this?
6: Um, as soon as I heard about the. Um, the Western Highway upgrade, as they call it, um, from, they were coming through from Beaufort to Buangor. Um, so there are a few of we locals who got together, um, some from Ballarat as well, who heard about it and were horrified. We didn't have much warning that it was being planned. Um, and we were worried for the destruction of the of the trees and the habitat and the wildlife which is my my big worry because they're out there squashing everything and displacing everything um and that's when um one of the locals um a landholder her 90 year old mother chained herself to a tree we were that was us that was um our group and yeah we were just horrified at the loss
3: that was happening and we still are, and it's still ongoing, there's a long way to go. I know that in the background there's been a lot of talk about how many people have been killed and how dangerous that road is and uh, that it's a vote winner for uh, National Party electorate, that sort of thing, you know, that it's all part of the ongoing plan to increase the safety of the uh, road network. But people have been talking about how this is very similar to the destruction of the uh, caves, you know, Rio Tinto's caves. Yes. You know, that if if uh, this was uh, an important cathedral, they wouldn't be knocking it down. They just don't see it as being That's important. Right.
6: No, they don't, and they're not recognising the the CHMP that the cultural heritage plan um, that they're working to is outdated. Um, they're displacing the. As far as I'm aware and as much as I know, um, the Jabberwong people, they're taking their significant places from them and they're not recognising treaty. They're not recognising their rights. Um, But as I say, that's not for me to talk. That's just, um, that's their story. I'm talking as a local and and this is my home and they're destroying it. And this fight is pivotal because, as you mentioned, with the caves, um, with treaties, with the Indigenous people and their rights um, with the, the deaths in custody, everything's coming to a point with their environment. Um, this is wiping out more wildlife that we we just can't afford to lose and their habitat. I live in an aerial uh, rural area and I'm being bombarded by roadworks, a huge super highway across pristine landscape, as well as logging behind me in Mount Cole Forest, which is ongoing as well. It's it's just got to stop. There's got to be some balance. I know people talk about jobs, but there are jobs in tourism. There are jobs in sustainable fields that can be looked into. We're we're dealing with outdated views. We're dealing with old politicians who just stick to the same ways they've always done. These roads they say are being built for the future. They're not. What kind of future are we looking at now? We've had COVID. We know things. Are looking different now. There are, there's more rail that needs to be built. Um, and the roads that they're building, honestly, I think the government should review MRPV. They have too much power. They let them get away with too much. They give them too much money and free range. They build roads that fall apart after a year. The road between Ballarat and Beaufort is atrocious. After the first year, It was full of potholes and there were delays while roadworks were done or they just had the areas just down to 60 k So their roads for the future, I'm afraid, aren't holding up and they're not safe. When they start disintegrating and there are huge potholes and the traffic has to keep slowing down four or five times on the one road, that's not safety. So I don't know where the money goes, but honestly it's not going into the structure of
3: the roads they're building. And
6: I don't think
3: they know what they're doing, personally. Well, I was going to say, one of the things that's really interesting is the fact that there was an injunction and they preempted the outcome of the injunction, which, uh, having been brought up in the country myself, quite often when there's something in dispute, uh, someone will come along and destroy the thing that was in dispute, you know, as a fait accompli. uh, A very country thing to do. Um, and uh, it, it's a sort of an interesting thing, isn't it?
6: It is, and this is what I think they did with the directions tree, and as I say, they say they claim it was insignificant. Uh, I, I Honestly, these people are like stone. How you could look at something like that if, if you could have seen it? You, you couldn't help it, but the feel the power of the thing and the beauty of it. It, it was just magic, and they just... They just destroyed. As I say, they didn't follow protocol. Um, I've been trying to chase up with Dalwip and MRPV to find out about the wildlife officer that's supposed to be with the habitat trees that they bring down, but none of them have have responded. So I'm going to be um, bringing them MRPV again today. Actually, I just pulled over to ring them before you called um, to try and get an answer about the directions tree. And if there was an officer there, get their name and contact details because... As I say, they have to put the plastic around these habitat trees for 48 hours and they had not done that because there were protesters still camped there and they only got in there once they got the protesters out. So they hadn't followed protocol once again and they continually
3: do this. And as I say, I I believe they should be looked into. Do you know if uh, there's uh, any protesters still up the trees? I'm not sure. I was going to try and find out myself this morning. I have um, I know
6: there was one down in what they called women's camp where the birthing tree is, um, and they had supporters, and I, I found that out yesterday morning, but then I went up to Top Camp to see what was happening and got caught up there and stayed there for the whole day with those people. Um, so I know there were two, three people in the trees at Top Camp, I am worried about them, Um, they were women, I'm hoping they're alright, I'm hoping they had support and I hope that the support people were let into the camp after MRPV moved in and destroyed everything and took it over and fenced it. So I do worry about the safety of those ladies because MRPV have proved themselves to be very um, childish, um, arrogant, rude, offensive. We've had we've had chainsaws revved at us. Like I'm an old lady, I'm 64. Um, I was with a skinny little protester, and these these MRPV thugs come over with their dark glasses and masks and helmets and hard gear, and they just stand there like big men. And they're menacing. If if there's no one else around, they menace us. We've had, as I say, chainsaws revved at us in our faces. So yeah I'm, I worry about the safety of those ladies.
3: And can you tell me how they're feeling? Do, uh, I mean you were up at the camp. Can you talk to me about how the, the morale of the people what are, how are they feeling? The, the people, the protesters were
6: brilliant. They were strong. they were regimented as in they had um, they knew what they were doing. they knew what to tell the police, um, what to ask the police. They knew when to be silent and but they were also buoyed by just the whole feeling of, of the energy of, of wanting to save save their trees, save the culture, the environment and stop these thugs going in. So we were all united in that those feelings. And um yeah, they're very they're very good these people. They're wonderful people. They've camped in these camps as I say for two years through snow extreme heat rain hail and they've stayed put and so they're just amazing they're resilient and they're thank heavens for them you know people they've been I'm embarrassed about my town because the bigotry the racism the threats of violence against these people for the whole time they've been there is just more than embarrassing It's, it's that's terrible. It's shocking. But, um, yeah, they've stayed strong, and I'm thankful that they were there. Thanks for talking to me, Elena.
3: You are right. Thank you. Hi, this is Liz Stringer, and you're listening to The Mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. This weekend is the centenary of the forming of the Australian Communist Party in 1920. Its members have been influential in the shaping of the progressive side of politics and this is being commemorated with the publication of a book, Comrades, and a day-long series of six online forums in collaboration with the New South Wales State Library where six major progressive movements members of the communist party were influential in will be discussed it starts at 9am and goes till 5pm uh, that's today so go to the search website to get an get on board or I'm pretty sure they will replay sessions on their YouTube channel as well. I caught up with Bob Broughton, one of the contributors to Comrades, to mark this historic milestone. It's very exciting that uh, this is the 100-year anniversary of the Communist Party, the Australian Communist Party, um, 1920. Uh, you start the book that you have now released uh to commemorate it with an interesting statement about similarities between when that began, when the party began in Australia, and now. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
4: Yes, I will. Like, in 1919, um, in the period just before the foundation of the Communist Party, the world was in the grip of the Spanish flu epidemic, the pandemic, the last really major global pandemic. And um, so the people... In Melbourne who were wanting to establish the Communist Party were wanting to go to Sydney to do so but they couldn't travel initially because of the pandemic there were restrictions on travel so it's a um, it's a pretty amazing coincidence that a hundred years later we're in the same sort of situation um, the other thing that was going on was that as the, today there is a huge kind of rebellion sweeping the world with the Black Lives Matter movement and the campaigns in facing the ecological catastrophe. The period, as people came out of World War One in 1918, 1919, um, they were also they had seen their world almost totally destroyed. You know, they had seen the most extraordinary destruction, especially in Europe, um, of you know huge tracts of land, of you know millions of people had died. And in response to that, the um, Bolsheviks in, the Soviet, in Russia and other groups in Germany and Eastern Europe were rising up, um, making revolution. So there was, it was a period of huge social unrest also. And in fact, that's what it was the revolution in Russia, which inspired the people in Melbourne and Sydney to come together to form the Communist Party in Australia.
3: Now the book that you've done is really quite fascinating it's called comrades right and it literally is comrades it's full of biographies of all the lots of different people who uh joined the communist party and it's over the years that uh the party existed in Australia. can you tell me about how uh the idea came about
4: well the um the Communist Party that I was a member of between 1975 and 1991 actually dissolved itself in 1991. Um, and, but most of us who were in it at the time um, set up, took, have joined an organisation called the Search Foundation, which has continued to support um, various left causes and to try to increase people's understanding of the nature of Australian capitalism through educational work and through documenting some of the history of the Communist Party. So when the 100th anniversary was coming up, we wanted to have some events that would um, recall the history of the Communist Party. So, you know, the one that finished 30 years ago. and um, But because of COVID, it was quite hard to work out how to have you know what sorts of events we could undertake and so we decided that we would try and collect a few biographies of comrades that we had known in the past or who had played a a role in the party um and organize some education sections for younger activists around the lives of those communists and initially we just thought we would put them up on the web and we'd maybe have 15 or 20 But when we wrote to people in the Search Foundation and in the Labour History Network in Australia to propose the idea, we got the most extraordinary response. We got over 100 people volunteering to produce biographies of communists they had known or who they knew about from all over Australia. So that was why the project has turned into a book because we we finished up with 150 biographies um, of people who had been in the party anywhere be- between 1920 and 1991. It's
3: fascinating because, I mean, you made you made a decision about uh, ensuring that there was uh, gender parity and uh, people from various backgrounds reflecting the nature of the people because that's what it is. The Communist Party was the people.
4: Exactly, and that's one of the things that... I always think when I read the more institutional histories of communist parties, including of the Communist Party of Australia, is that it tends to focus on the leadership and the line and the relationships between the Communist Party and other parties and a whole lot of the kind of higher level stuff, which is very important for understanding the history of communism. But communist parties are basically parties of activists and it 's the activists who um, it 's the story of the activists that really tells you what communism was in Australia and what it what kind of a movement it was. Um, of course, they would not have been able to do what they did without being part of the of the organization and without having the leadership and all the structures that the party had. But when it boils down to it, these people were the most diverse and interesting bunch of individual activists who supported each other across a huge range of struggles in all over Australia and so we really wanted to tell their story but the other thing that we wanted to do and this is why we insisted that we wanted a gender balance in it is that we're not just doing this to celebrate the past we're doing this because we think it's important for the current social movements and the thing is that in 2020 it's incredibly important to not to repeat the mistakes of the past and give a patriarchal kind of version of the history. And I'm afraid because of the party being a product of its times, it was in fact afflicted with you know, the patriarchal hegemony of the time. And so the women in the party don't appear nearly as prominently in the more standard official histories of the party.
3: But it's fascinating, isn't it? Because uh, the women that I read in about in the book did quite extraordinary things, like like the uh, fascinating uh, lawyer woman uh, who was there at the very beginning, Jolly.
4: Christ, yes, Christian Jolly Smith. Yes, yeah, and um, you know, Christian Jolly Smith appears almost as a footnote in the official histories as a, one of the women who was at the meeting and who was the partner of the man who became the general secretary in, at the outset, Bill Earsman. But when I actually began doing some research on her, because I had a particular interest in her, because she had played a role in 1957 in preparing the first, um, the first petition for a referendum to change the constitution to recognise the, the indigenous people in the constitution. so. I have worked a lot in the Aboriginal rights movement, so this is how I came across Christian Jolly Smith. So I went back looking at the rest of her life and discovered that she had had the most extraordinary activist life. And even though she hadn't remained in the party leadership, she had done incredible work all through her life defending the unemployed in the 1930s, defending unions against the anti-communist attacks in the 1940s and 1950s, and the work that she did to support the Indigenous Rights Movement. So, yes, she's an exceptional woman, extraordinary woman.
3: And and actually that's just a a bit interesting because despite the fact that she was uh, working in a field that is recognised as being having agency within uh, the structure that we have, uh, probably because she was a woman, she slipped in in the
4: cracks, (laughs) down the cracks. Exactly. And because she, and interestingly, like she was a solicitor, so she often briefed radical barristers, but the barristers tended to be male. And so when you hear the story, say, of the Royal Commission inquiring into espionage that was basically an anti-communist witch hunt, um, they mentioned the male Communist and Labor Party barristers who appeared to defend the unions and the Communist Party members. But they don't mention that Christian Jolly Smith was actually the the solicitor briefing those barristers and doing a lot of the legwork for the presentations they were making before the Royal Commission. Quite bizarre.
3: Anyway, there are other fascinating people, of course. And uh, uh, the the Walshers were incredible. Uh, uh, You're quite even-handed in the uh, approach to uh, the um, biographies in the sense that the Walshers were completely... uh, uh, I don't know left field really, weren't they? They were there at the beginning, but their politics were quite
4: bizarre. Exactly, yes. Like um, Adela Pankhurst, Walsh started off her life as a kind of suffragette feminist, like her, her, um, you know, her mother Emmeline Pankhurst, and um, was a solid lefty basically. But in the end, she finished up moving quite to the right. She didn't stay with the communists at all. But nevertheless, her. Story is part of the story and so we didn't exclude the people who were the pe- you know who you know other people might say became heretics because they they abandoned the Communist Party or they did something else in their life you know we tried to include everybody examples of what everybody did in the party some people only lasted a few years and left because they couldn't get on with the leadership you know so there's a lot of there's a lot of people in the book who weren't actually members of the Communist Party all their lives, even though a lot of the people in the book are were. There are lots who had a very um, sort of difficult relationship with the party, but that didn't stop them being really extraordinary activists.
3: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it really talks about the uh, notion, there's, you know, uh, there's key platforms to the notions that come with co- the Communist Party, which were things like education, culture, uh, as well as equality, like it, it, it's quite a broad uh, group of people working in many fields.
4: Exactly, yes so you've got people who were you know, um, quite extraordinary playwrights, you know like um, oh, who would we, Who would I think of there Mona Brand for instance, who was a you know, who was a successful playwright you had people like Noel Coonahan who was an artist or Ailsa O'Connor who was a part of the Melbourne art scene in the 30s, you know. So there were people who were intellectuals and artists and um, some people who were extraordinarily well-educated who had degrees from Australian and even from, you know, overseas universities, but they worked side by side with people from the waterfront and people who worked in the kitchens of the Hotel Australia and people who worked, you know, in factories like the Ford factories, The GMH factory out of Melbourne, you know, and some of them did both. Like um, Ralph de Boisier, for instance, came to Australia as an immigrant from the from the West Indies. Um, He was, you know, well educated and a writer, but he finished up working in a you know one of the vehicle builder factories, you know, but he also um, worked as a he produced some fantastic. Novels, which were published through the realist writers group, which the party had set up, which was to encourage working class and progressive writers to get you know to get their work published in australia and um yeah, so he was doing both and what's really interesting is that there were a lot of worker comrades who actually did take up the pen and wrote poems and became writers um and a lot of people for instance um Dennis Kevins, who was a teacher, he you know, used to call himself Australia's poet, Laura Keat. He used to write very funny poems that were really popular at demonstrations and things, but he was also quite a serious poet and songwriter. So people, um, the party encouraged the cultural development of its members. I think it's really different from any other political party in that it saw that the working class Deserved to have as culturally rich a life as the bourgeoisie and they did everything they possibly could to develop people's access to um, aspects of culture that they might not otherwise have been exposed to, like through theatre and music and through um, educational activities. And so film. They were, they were very much, yeah, and film, yes, yes. They, they The, the uh, Norma Disha who appears in the... Book. She was a um, filmmaker who she had a, an uneasy relationship with the party, but nevertheless, it was through her involvement with the party that she was able to make some, some of Australia's first progressive films. And um, so she was involved with the Waterside Workers Film Unit, for instance, which made films which supported what the Waterside Workers struggles, you know, struggles they were involved with, such as the struggle against the Dutch reoccupation of Indonesia at the end of the war. So, yeah, so there were filmmakers, there were artists, there were, you know, they sponsored the new theatre. It was quite a culturally rich organisation for all of its 70 years of existence.
3: And this is clear in in these stories, and they go right up to uh, the different periods, right up to the end, to 1991. I know that, uh, like, the the book is being launched and it will be available at the New International Bookshop and other good bookshops, I presume. Um, but uh, to celebrate the um, centenary, there's also going to be on Saturday, today, in collaboration with the New South Wales uh, Library, State Library, there's going to be, uh, from nine to five, six one-hour sem- seminars about how... Communist members were involved in major reformist progressive uh, campaigns. Uh, So what I'm getting at is that... Well, that was part of it, wasn't it? That people had progressive politics. They didn't just stay within the realms of the Communist Party. They actually influenced the the, uh, groups that they went and joined otherwise.
4: Exactly, yes. I mean, the party... um was a party of activists and its role was to try and build the capacity of the working class and progressive forces so that they would be able to challenge capitalism and work towards a socialist Australia. That was its role. And so it in, it embedded itself in popular movements. It, is, it It initiated some popular movements and it certainly... Um, played a huge role in a number of, in in most of the social movements of the 20th century. So, for instance, you know, and these sessions that are on on Saturday um, are on today, I should say, are about the role of the party in those movements. So, there's one about its role in the indigenous rights movement, um, which was you know it was involved with from the 1930s onwards. There's one on its involvement in the environment movement another on its role in the unions and labour movement, another on its role in the women's movement um, and its role in the movement among migrants and ethnic minorities and in the peace and international solidarity movement. So they are the six sessions that are on, on, the, um, on today and they'll discuss what party members did in those movements and hopefully... In a way which will be relevant to people who are still working in those movements today.
3: Well, congratulations.
4: Thank you very much.
3: <laughs> Thanks for talking to by me. Buy the book. Yeah, buy the yeah, book. And,
4: oh, 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 by the way, people should know also that because we had to, we could only fit 100 in, we've got 50 other biographies which are gradually going up on the Search Foundation website. So if you log on to www.search.org.au, you'll find. A thing called the Communist Biographies Project and some of the we're gradually putting up the other fifty ones on the website there.
3: Thanks for talking to me.
4: That's great. Thank you very much. Bye. You're with
3: Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. If you followed the daily Dan Andrews media conferences during COVID, you might have caught his reaction to a question about special consideration for Halloween. He just looked back quizzically and basically battered the question back, saying he didn't really have time for an imported American fixation. All around my suburb, you can tell uh, who has kids because they are busy draping their front yards with fake cobwebs and plastic witches and caution tapes. So clearly some people like the dress-ups and make-believe. I spoke to Dr Michael Barbazat from the Australian Catholic University, who is a fellow in medieval and early modern studies at their Institute for Religion and Cultural Inquiry, for a a deeper perspective on Halloween. I was uh, wondering if you give my listeners some understanding of how Halloween relates to medieval thought, the way they would uh, understand an event like Halloween.
5: Oh, right. So for them, the biggest thing in the mindset of especially the guys that I read, and there are limitations, as you can probably hear, because... Sources that's old from medieval Europe are overwhelmingly written by Christian men. So there's a lot that might be hazy in the way that they're perceiving things. But what to them was really big were actually the first days in November. November 1 and November 2. November 1 for them is the Feast of All Hallows, which is where we get All Hallows Eve for October 31st. And by all hallows, they mean all the saints. So it's a commemoration of all the saints together. And the second is the Feast of All Souls. So that's a commemoration of all the dead, all the departed that you still care about um, all together on one day. And one of the reasons why the shift between October and November is really convenient for that, and this is where we get into things where there might be older and deeper explanations, but this is the harvest season. So it's a really good time to pause and to think about the changing of the seasons, processes of life and death, and what that might mean to you. And so it's a good time for these types of festivals.
3: And I suppose, I mean, I, I've wondered about, um, as you say, the older sort of connections, which are uh, ancestor worship in a sense, really.
5: Well, yes. And medieval Christians also still did a lot of ancestor veneration, worship they would have wanted to argue about. But are the ancestors big and central in all of this? Absolutely. They're huge. So we do think that there are much older traditions behind a lot of this. They're very hazy and hard to see, but they must be there. But when it enters the written record, and we have people clearly explaining what they're doing and how they would like us to remember what they were doing, they're often talking about the saints who are ancestors, of course. These are people that came before us and are are dead and that we remember. And then they're also talking about individual family members and remembering them and helping them in the other world, particularly for the Middle Ages, purgatory. And one of the interesting things you can do to help people in purgatory that we often lose sight of is acts of charity. You do nice things for poor people in this world. And this was a season for
3: that. Uh, So now, um, that's, uh, even in that period, they were redressing uh, the concept of the connection between uh, the living and the dead. And now, with the present-day version of Halloween, it's dress-ups and uh, yes. giving of gifts or giving of tricks, um, which leads to a sense of a potential horror, really, isn't, doesn't it?
5: <laughs> yes. Well, let's see, the, the other world and interactions with it can be enlightening, and it can also be really scary. You know, so ancestors can be positive things. Uh, that give us wisdom, that make us feel grounded and connected, that we build our communities on the memory of these people. But also ancestors can be threatening. They pass down to us things that are disturbing sometimes, you know, things they did wrong, mistakes they made. Uh, we inherit those things. And there's a very deep and old notion that was held in pre-Christian societies and then in Christian societies afterwards that if you don't remember the ancestors and give them their due and kind of pay attention to them, live with them, they come back in monstrous forms. And so that's kind of a frightening ghost or, uh, uh, or the kind of more spectacular stories you get of corpses rising out of graveyards to, to stalk the night. But even though many of them in the past believed these stories were literally true, they also understood that there's a symbolic meaning there about how we relate to the past.
3: How do you uh, assimilate these, these notions with uh, the consumerist process that we're in in the modern era?
5: And that's really big in Australia, isn't it? Who's kind of receiving this holiday in some ways from maybe it, it, its American nursery about in, its, in its current modern form, right? Yes. Yeah. And in the Middle Ages in similar stuff that happened at this similar type of year people had similar anxieties that this is getting too corporate so when they got together to remember uh the dead and especially help them in purgatory medieval people did pause and say it really seems that sometimes this is about money more than it is about what it should be about which is about family and about love and about you know coming together and remembering the past and dealing with them and sometimes being frightened Uh, About the past, but then also in being frightened, moving on, you know, going on with our own lives. And I think that's a real parallel to some of the conversations today we have about a kind of corporate holiday that just seems to be gaining on us sometimes for mysterious reasons, but there's a real deep history for that.
3: Can you tell me why it's so big in America? I mean, this is an inherited holiday for for Australians. Yeah. And when I looked into it more uh, carefully, it was uh, grounded in Irish tradition and I dare say in other traditions of that sort. And obviously, it made its way to America. Why it does Ameri- why has it always been there for Americans?
5: Well, I think it might have had such cachet in America for a similar reason that it may be taking up um, momentum in Australia now is that this is a society where a lot of people from different places have come here um, and kind of culturally powerful things get taken up and repackaged and turned into different products that are then kind of sold. And um, so I think in, in American history, there's been something about this time of year and about this holiday that created really useful and powerful images that have kind of grown with time. So in the 19th century, you have this, you know, Sleepy Hollow story, right? Ichabod Crane. And that, that story develops even with the inclusion of something like a jack-o'-lantern you know before it's just in the first versions it's a pumpkin and then it gets into the classical form we know it pretty soon which is the headless horseman has a a burning jack-o'-lantern instead of just a pumpkin Um, but that's an example of the kind of storytelling in america that's kind of clustered around the holiday and grown with time i think and in australia one interesting thing about the take-up of course is that the seasons are the opposite Halloween is a Northern Hemisphere holiday in its core concept, right? There's no there's no harvest season here on October 31.
3: No, that's exactly right. So it doesn't. It's not actually based in any of the traditions. I suppose if we go back to that notion of uh, communing with the dead, uh, there are other um, traditions in relation to that that. are Quite extraordinary to us, the idea of uh, going to the cemetery and having a picnic with your past—that sort of thing. Yes,
5: yes, and you know, some of this has become strange to us only recently. Um, in in the past, in in Western Europe, there was there was a window there. So in the Middle Ages, you wouldn't want to do this because graveyards were sometimes a kind of frightening places for very uh, logistical reasons, but when uh, we moved away from churchyards to modern graveyards that were kind of like very large parks, there was a window where you would go there to have picnics. You would go there with your families because it was some of the only green space in a a modernizing city. And we've moved away from that today. We we think of that as really kind of inappropriate and foreign, but that's a relatively recent change for Western European societies to have undergone. And things like the Day of the Dead in Mexico, I mean, in, in some ways, there's a great continuity there with uh, the things that people in the Middle Ages would have been doing uh, on November 2nd, the Feast of All Souls. And But there, of course, it's intersected with Mesoamerican traditions that predate uh, the contact after Christopher Columbus.
3: So so um, at root, if you put, a, put aside uh, the... Uh, uh, assimilation of uh, traditions to make money and, uh, you know, come up with uh, gaudy uh, festivity. Um, At core, the uh, connection between uh, uh, people in the present and their history and also their realisation that they're going to die, uh, these Mm -hmm. are actually quite uh, compelling, aren't they? That sort of idea.
5: Yes, and historically this is the time of year when people engaged in that type of reflection and also
3: believed that the, in some way that the dead could hear them
5: and that there could be a response
3: of some kind. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, because there's been a lot of... I mean, it's like uh, that movie uh, The Sixth Sense, which then spawned a whole range of other types of movies of that sort. It's a very... Uh, fertile uh, um, area of concern for humans, isn't it?
5: It definitely is. And I think we we have a lot of conversations about how we manage uh, contact with the past because, like I said before, kind of the ancestors who are not listened to or uh, a past that isn't listened to might come back to us as a kind of monster. You know, there's also a kind of Freudian notion there, right? Like when you repress something. It's a similar kind of idea. And so this season might be a time to not repress the past but confront the past, take a look at it, and then think about how do I go on and live.
3: So so it's funny, too, because in the uh, modern uh, conceptualization of Halloween, it's seen as a child's uh, affair, a childish affair. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could almost say that the adults are using that... Uh, um, idea of it being childish to try and contain their own um, mortality, I guess.
5: <laughs> yeah, but it, it also is, an, it,
3: I, I think it's a having,
5: having grown up in the United States, just outside Chicago, I always loved the holiday because of how much life there was in it, strangely enough. So you're playing around with images of death and, and notions of being afraid, but at the same time, you're doing it with your family. You're going out into your neighborhood. You're seeing all your neighbors. You're talking to all your neighbors. They're giving you candy, you know, when you show up dressed up in a a little outfit. So I think there's also a very strong aspect of life talking to death at the same time. And at least for me as a child, I instinctually felt a little bit of that.
3: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I wonder if it's similar to... uh those uh, days that they used to have in medieval times where people were allowed to have, uh, muck up. I mean, and this happens in places like Thailand too. They'll have a, a festival where they it's all about throwing water and, uh, and being rowdy when they normally wouldn't be, that sort of thing, you know, like where you're allowed to be completely different from normal. Break, uh, break yeah, kind of a, way. A, world,
5: a world upside down.
3: Yeah, a world upside down.
5: Yeah, like festival time. Um, yeah, in, inverted time. And the, those types of holidays, those types of moments, are often seen by a lot of people as kind of like steam valves, you know, for a society where we let off pressure. Mm. And that helps us be normal the rest of the time. I think one of the interesting things about the medieval past... Besides the notion that one of the most useful things you can do um, in memory of the dead is do something positive in the present, help somebody who needs help, is also that ghosts are very scary in a lot of medieval stories, but they also teach us things. They're, they're, they're worth listening to much of the time because they, they know things and they can help us if you know how to listen and if you know how to interact with them in a way that's safe. And that might be a way of thinking about history and how we relate to the past.
3: Interesting because the Chinese ghost stories are a lot scarier. Like Chinese ghosts <laughs> are really scary.
5: And well, so, so some of the medieval ones are, are are very frightening, especially when you're interacting with someone that might that might be from, from hell, might might be visiting from hell, which is maybe a questionable thing can, you know, the, the, the medieval theologians like to argue about that of where, where can a soul come from? Where can the dead come from? Where can they not come from? And so that made for them these stories even more interesting because there was so much uncertainty, even in their theories. But what they knew is it really seems to happen.
3: Well, one, one of the things that you look into, isn't, uh, isn't it, that it, is it uh, how people in medieval periods arrange themselves, uh, their cultural world, based on these belief structures?
5: Yes, this was very important to them because it, it's a way of finding and then expressing what's right. So the other world can has a lot of lessons, they believed, and a lot of ideal forms of organization. And so when you ask, what should I do in this world? Well, maybe the other world, in the way it's laid out, has a pattern for you to follow. And also at the same time, if you're doing something in this world, maybe something from the other world can come here and let you know that you're doing the right thing. And so very often when a supernatural being appears in medieval literature, the characters in the story ask it some form of is such and such right. So there's a very famous ghost story that's told by a guy in the south of France that when a bunch of learned guys get access to a ghost that appears to a little girl and only the little girl at first can see the ghost or talk to the ghost. They one of the questions they ask her was about a contemporary war. Is this war good? Is it wrong? Should 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 this not be happening? So that that's an example of of the kind of the positive role sometimes that the dead can play, even though the answer that that particular ghost gives is, to our modern eyes, a really not pleasant answer, which is that, yes, that war is good. So it really sometimes depends on the audience, what the dead end up saying.
3: Oh, that's interesting. Because in a sense, it's, it's an imagined world
5: yeah and the interesting thing is is that it's it's a world that does things in this in this world, for us, to us, to our ancestors, even if we think it's physically real or not. Um, the stories are here, they exist, and by being told, the stories do things. so on some level, we can sidestep the the question of you know is it real or not real, but the thing is the relationships that people have to these stories and to these ideas. Are real. The relationships are here.
3: Mm, yeah, very good point. <laughs> Thanks for uh, talking to me.
5: Well, thank you for having
4: me. Naja Gurujan, This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yaru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time.
2: A weak solidarity Becky. team listener, when we lockdown loosened, we can now rush out and kickstart the economy. Give those who take all the risks just to provide jobs for the lazy avaricious ingrates whom they so care about... All our money. Spend, spend, spend. Freedom is spending. Interesting that this week the great airlines, like the airlines that used to be our airline and the associated private airports, complained, indeed, they said, True Blue Aussie had lost billions thanks to COVID. And I thought, well, yes, people mightn't have poured their hard-earned into your pockets, but it's it's still in their pockets. So is it really lost? mentioned last week how the hayseed and sheepshit party supremo michael mcmake the rich richer explained that in 30 years we'd realize paying 30 mil for land worth three would be a bargain that's when i decided to put my house up for a mere 125 million its estimated value in 30 years so i could give someone else a bargain as long as i could buy a replacement at current prices and we commented that Uh, Michael might be one of the more advanced economic thinkers in the government one hell of a worry and no connection of course but this week when Attorney General Christian Porterloo was asked when he might do something about a federal anti-corruption body he's had a draft of for 11 months he said it would take a lot, lot, lot more time and consultation showing how they so believe in consultation with all of us Again, no connection, but for those wondering why they haven't arrived yet, the very, very expensive watches are in the mail. Oh, and two highly paid lawyers at the top of the securities body supposed to prevent rip-offs, claiming trillions in expenses, including having the public purse pay your rent, which they obviously couldn't afford from their enormous salaries. And after the government gave Lord Rupert a whopping Fox Tell It, Lord Rupert's Way pay TV $30 to broadcast underrepresented sports, and another $10 to cover women's soccer, as the ABC could no longer show these sports because the government had slashed its funding by at least as much as it handed over to Lord Rupert. But Lord Rupert then charged the ABC for the ABC to show the True Blue Aussie Matilda's games. Win-win for Lord Rupert, a great believer in free enterprise. In the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, a man Lord Rupert admires, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, boasted to the usual crowd of enraptured. I'd say raptured, except it's it's not a verb. Oh, oh what the hell. Raptured, unmasked, non-distanced giant minds who thus were not masking their, their distancing from reality. But he is sick of hearing COVID, COVID, COVID. By the way, I had it. Here I am, to rapturous applause. Just a pity about the 250 or so thousand Americans who aren't, or here, there, or anywhere, who won't be voting. On COVID, a study published in that bestseller, Nature Microbiology, this week, claimed those who experience it severely may have an advantage over those who have had mild symptoms, as they may be protected from reinfection for longer periods, which shows just how lucky, lucky, lucky were those who had it most severely and died, like Donald's 250,000 or so co-citizens who will be protected for the longest, longest time. Donald may have only had slight symptoms, so, well, let's hope. For those 250,000 and increasing, bit stiff, bad pun intended, missing out on one of the greatest scientific miracles by that great scientific mind, yes, Donald himself again, who knows other scientists have no idea what they're talking about. Well, except the ones who agree with him, but what a miracle. The US, he repeated this week, as he has over four years, has the cleanest air and water in the world, cleanest ever, ever, and can maintain this environmental nirvana without cutting back even one microgram on oil, gas, shale, coal, fracking, resource mining, generally unabated. All the things the scientists who don't know what they're talking about claim have a bit of an adverse effect on clean air and water or not-so-clean-air-and-water becoming even more not-so-clean. On the other hand, the other bloke, sorry, guy, Joe Biden by capital, challenges Donald's miracle, suggesting the air, the water, the environment may not be absolutely pristine, may not quite be the cleanest in the world, and he would take action to redress all that. So thank goodness when challenged by Donald and Donald supporters that he would destroy the great U.S. old fossils industry, end fracking, Joe assures us the other lot are lying, assures us he would not destroy the fossils industry, not stop fracking, for instance. Great relief showing he is what we know he is, just another politician. A fossil-led attack on climate change, if there is such a thing as, the same attack as our lot here practiced. Despite that, the commentariat suggest Joe would expose our very own true blue Aussie policies on climate and energy, which says heaps about our very own true blue Aussie policies on climate and energy. We've all seen these glossy promotions for some mob who produce coins and all sorts of commemorative, highly overpriced merchandise, exhorting great human triumphs like war and slaughter, or the deification of royalty, great moments in the life of Her Most Gracious Majesty and Her Hangers-On. Coins, for instance, as a glorification of war no coin commemorating glorifying the wars on true blue soil which slaughtered the terra people who being terra therefore didn't exist and weren't here when the king of england invaded the place but then that wasn't war that was nation building so-called commemorative rubbish which some people must actually buy because they keep advertising the bloody things. And this week, perhaps celebrating the U.S. of choice, if we could call it that, between the aforementioned, it's gone U.S. of. Here's excitement. Our very own The Wonderful World of Disney Christmas Tree. Over 50 Disney characters who have given us countless gifts, unforgettable moments of love, laughter, and imagination. The restrained spiel, restrained language goes on. The spin doctors must have great fun writing all this crap, seeing who can come up with the most cloying. But the good news is we can stuff up this countless gift for a mere $300. No, I lie. Two ninety nine ninety five for a Christmas tree, plus postage and handling, of course. A mere five easy sixty dollars, and sorry again, fifty nine ninety nine payments. And repeating the worry, they must think people will buy it. It doesn't do much for our faith in humanity. Charging for handling's interesting, because how else are they going to get it to you? Genuine good news this week, ICANN, the international campaign against nuclear weapons started right here in Melbourne and which won the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize, has seen the ratification of nuclear disarmament at the UN of the US, of the UN of the world, and in 90 days from last Sunday, nuclear weapons will be banned, illegal. Still a lot of work to be done, but congratulations for all their wonderful work. Oh, and I'm sure I don't need to tell you, true blue Aussie is not a signatory, nor is the man of peace. Yes, in the U.S. of the man of peace, he declared himself the peace president. When will he receive the Nobel Peace Prize he so deserves? Perhaps shared with that epitome of peace and tranquility, his secretary for U.S. of World State Mike Pompeo or else, the self-proclaimed peace president announced, along with his very, very, very close friend Zion, Supremo, Benjamin, not another Yahoo!, really Benjamin would be another most worthy recipient to share the peace prize, announced Sudan now recognised Zion and recognised the Palestinian non-land, non-people had no right to complain about having no land, while Zion occupied what used to be their land and also occupies what land to which they were banished, but only for peaceful purposes. Selfish, selfish, non-land, non-people. The third recognized Zion in recent weeks and not recognized the non-land non-people. We can't have peace, which is Zion on the U.S. greatest wish and ambition, as long as the Palestinian non-people insist on having land. Benjamin was all sincerity. We extend the hand of peace to the Palestinian non-people, call on them to renounce their unreasonable demand to have their own land. That would be seizing and occupying another people's country. Now, finally, I raise this because Donald, Benjamin, and the peace team thanked Sudan for its act of solidarity by removing it from the list of cruel, heartless countries that export terrorism. That is, The U.S. Ob has a list of countries it doesn't like whom it claims export terrorism, that is, other countries. Good morning.
3: You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR, your community radio station. we finished this morning with a piece from a webinar update auspiced by the MEAA, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, on the American government witch hunt, oh, sorry, extradition proceedings against Julian Assange being held in London. Australian human rights lawyer Jennifer Robinson is one of Julian's legal team and she's talking with Mary Costacitus who has been reporting daily on the proceedings?
0: In terms of the process, uh, we are now working on closing submissions, which are due for us on Friday. Um, The US will have an opportunity to respond. We will have a subsequent opportunity to reply to that. And decision is going to be handed down on the 4th of January. Um, After that point, um, if the judge rejects our arguments um, for extradition, she'll send his case to the Secretary of State on the same day and the Secretary of State will then make a decision about whether to order his extradition. Uh, in the meantime, we're able to make certain submissions to, to, to her. Um, after that, um, if extradition is ordered, we will have an opportunity to seek permission to appeal. And if that permission is granted, uh, we would. it's likely to be heard probably later in the summer or autumn. Uh, but if all goes badly, as Julian continues to remind me, he could be extradited um, by the end of the summer, European summer. Um, But, of course, both the prosecution and us as the defence have indicated that we will appeal. So it will first go to the High Court um, and then given the nature and the complexity of the arguments, we do think we have some really good appeal points Um, and so we could end up in the Supreme Court and, no doubt, later in the European Court of Human Rights if we have to. So it's um, a complicated and long process but one which could resolve
1: itself quite quickly if it doesn't go in our favour. Will the US election have any impact on the decision, do you think, Jennifer? Well, I think the fact that so many people are
0: asking that question demonstrates just how political this case is. Of course, this case is inherently political and we can talk more about the arguments, but this is an unprecedented case, the first time in the history of the United States that a publisher has been sought for prosecution under the Espionage Act. Uh, It is a case in which we argue this is a political offence. It is on its face political. It is the espionage, which is a typical political offence under international law, which should never be, you should never face extradition for this. But, of course, also the political motivation that we heard a lot about during the proceedings, both in terms of the Trump administration's clear decision after Obama had decided not to prosecute Julian. There was no indictment under the Obama administration, which was consistent with Eric Holder, then Attorney General's public statements, that no journalist would go to prison on his watch. Um, So we know that this is a Trump administration initiative. We know that the Trump administration calls the press the enemy of the people. We know that this has been driven and was driven by Mike Pompeo's initial statement saying we will take WikiLeaks down. So I think there are many people are speculating and hoping that with the change of administration, um, if there is a change of administration, that it may uh, signal perhaps a different approach or one that might uh, return to what we saw under Obama where Chelsea Manning was commuted and there was no indictment. But that remains to be seen. And and from, from our point of view, there's an indictment, we have an extradition request. And so we
1: have to just work on the basis that this is going to continue. Could you summarise the US case for us and the evidence that they presented? Well, I think
0: the interesting thing that people perhaps who are observing the proceedings is, is that we have a US indictment, one which we say fundamentally misrepresents the facts. The only evidence put by the United States was uh, affidavit evidence from a US prosecutor who didn't come to be cross-examined. So that evidence was untested. Uh, the only live evidence we had from the US prosecution were psychiatric, um, their psychiatric experts who tried to pick apart what you know what we've been saying. Um, and, of course, I think it's really important, the psychiatric evidence is really important because uh, many of you may not have seen the news that Julian has since been diagnosed with autism. Uh, with Asperger's, that he is on the spectrum, which many of us who have worked with him for many of years um, aren't, weren't particularly surprised by that diagnosis. Um, and of course, the the impact, the psychiatric impact of extradition, being held in a supermax prison, likely being held under what what we have had evidence of of special administrative measures, which is effectively incommunicado detention. And I just think that people really need to understand the the. Prison conditions and, and the, the prospects that Julian is facing, you know, he is facing 175 years in prison, effectively will be held in incommunicado in detention under the kinds of measures that you see imposed upon terrorists. And this is all happening in the world's greatest democracy.
1: Uh, you mentioned these two psychiatrists that uh, appeared for cross examination, and I have to say that was one of the astonishing moments for me when one of them was asked under cross examination by uh, Fitzgerald, um, uh, would Julian's depression worsen would it become more severe under those conditions and therefore would you know he'd, he'd be a higher suicide uh, risk and he uh, kept sidestepping around that but finally he admitted that if you um, were to take away the things that make a difference are the things that give people hope so connection with his family, um, phone calls to Samaritans. And Fitzgerald put to him, if those things are taken away, is his depression likely to worsen and, and therefore would he have, and There was a very, very long pause and we could only see the back of his head. I would have liked to have seen his face. And you probably remember that moment, Jen, because at the end of this very long pause there was a gasp and you realised the guy was holding his breath because his Hippocratic oath was conflicting. I think that's what was happening, he was wondering how the hell he was going to answer this question without unravelling the work he had done. Um, so that that was a very telling moment for me and he didn't answer the question and the judge didn't compel him to answer the question.
0: For me personally, I was sitting with um, Julian's partner throughout the hearing and one of the more difficult parts of the evidence for her to hear and to, to sit with her to hear this evidence was was the evidence that we heard about Julian's preparedness to commit suicide and the likelihood that he would commit suicide if he's extradited, uh, the fact that he's made a will, that he's written goodbye letters, that he's he has taken measures in prison and been sanctioned in prison for concealing razors. It was very hard for her to hear and very hard hard for me to, to hear, actually. But, and I, but I think it's important that people hear it because this is the impact that this this case is having on your colleague and member who is... Who has won the Walkley Award for most outstanding contribution to journalism? Who's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for these publications? This is the impact that this process is having on him, and the the prospect of what he faces if he is returned to the United States. And of course, we're doing everything we can to stop that. He talks about dying and 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 taking his own life, um, and that it's an effective death sentence because even if he, even if he somehow survives the process, then. Then he's facing effective life in prison under incommun- in, incommun- incommunicated detention, and I don't even know how much how much darker does it need to get.
1: Um, Jennifer, the um, U.S. attorney, Cromberg, uh, and and they were relying but the prosecution was relying on all his depositions. Really painted this um, facility as some sort of holiday resort with activities and. Uh, one thing and another the very final witness for the defense she talked about her client who was extradited from um, the UK and I I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about her evidence that's right so the US often gives extradition uh, gives undertakings with respect to the
0: treatment of prisoners once in the United States in order to be able to ensure their extradition This happened in the case of Abu Hamza, it's happened in other cases that my colleagues worked on uh, from other European countries, and the US has routinely disregarded those assurances. Uh, I just think the important thing is to note that being held in a supermax prison and being placed under special administrative measures, which is what will happen to Julian and is what happens to the majority of Espionage Act defendants, is that... You are in incommunicado detention. You cannot even communicate with your lawyers um, without being under surveillance. You do not have the same kind of contact with the outside world. The you know legal defense groups in the United States have called it the the blackest dark hole of the U.S. prison system. This is how serious it is. I've talked a lot historically about the free speech implications, and I really think it's important we talk about that and some of the uh, some of the points that were made by the prosecution during the course of the hearing. But I don't think that MEAA members have previously heard about the reality of the prison conditions that Julian is going to face, the reality of the process he's going to face. Not only will he be held in that kind of detention... We heard evidence from Clive Stafford-Smith during the course of the proceedings about the way in which the US runs conspiracy cases and the breadth of the criminal case that's being undertaken. The fact he's now facing new allegations under the second superseding indictment that were introduced just weeks before the hearing when we had finished our written submissions, the evidence was in, and suddenly the US is starting to trying to shore up its case, expanding the allegations. Um, We read about it in the media a press release from the Department of Justice. It wasn't served on uh, our defense team till much later. Initially, the United States was saying, "Well, this won't make any difference to the case. So it's just you know new factual. It's just a new factual background to the indict the existing indictment." After we agreed that we wouldn't adjourn the proceedings so that Julian shouldn't spend any more time in prison, the U.S. then decided that actually, no, it could form these new allegations could form the basis of new criminal allegations in the United States. So even if all of the Manning-related accusations and parts of the indictment were refused in terms of extradition, the judge could still order his extradition on these new allegations. These are allegations we haven't even had time to look at, consider, and we were prevented from putting evidence in in response to. So the process itself, I mean, it's hard to know where to begin in terms of the abusive process that this entire prosecution is. The abuse of the process to punish a prosecutor in this way to the point where he is contemplating, seriously contemplating suicide. This is, it's hard to believe this is even happening, first to an Australian citizen
1: in the UK at the behest of the United States. We didn't hear anything about the new allegations in court. and, And the very first thing the judge did was to refuse an adjournment so that the defence could prepare uh, a defence mm-hmm. against these um, allegations. So, how is she going to take them into account? In, I mean, what will happen to those allegations? How will she factor them in, in, in into her decision? Um, so the, the new allegations
0: expand the um, conspiracy to commit computer intrusion um, allegations to a broader period starting from 2009 to 2015, making all kinds of vague accusations, which, um, frankly, we haven't even had time to look at, but we know just on their face are incredibly vague and, and unsubstantiated uh, accusations of conspiracy with uh, hacking groups like Anonymous. Um also, we saw reference to Sarah Harrison, to this to the fact that WikiLeaks assisted Snowden. These kinds of allegations that were included in this new superseding indictment, of course, again, like we said, the prosecutors initially told us it was just background and then later told us actually, you know, this could form the basis for standalone criminal accusations once he's returned to the United States. Um, this process is highly unusual and unprecedented. As you heard from our lead defence counsel, Mark Summers, Mary, in the hearing, he said... None of us in the collective experience on the on the defence team, which is extensive, have ever been in a situation where just weeks before a complicated evidential hearing is about to take place, when all of the legal submissions have been made, the requesting government suddenly sends a new superseding indictment. Not only that, we were refused an adjournment once we understood the consequences of the indictment, Once we were notified of the consequences of the indictment, we're not allowed to put in evidence. And of course, we made an application that she should excise those new accusations that they shouldn't be part of the case. So it remains to be seen what she will do with it. But as I said, this is entirely unprecedented. So how that will play out
1: in the judgment and then a subsequent appeal remains to be seen. So the point that the prosecution kept making is that this is an ongoing investigation and so that this was quite normal for them to come up with a further evidence. What I'm wondering is how uh, the UK court can decide to extradite Julian uh, knowing that the investigation's ongoing and the not just the evidence and the allegations but the charges may change once, he gets, uh, once he's on US soil of course, that
0: is the risk. And again, it shows the the abusive nature of this process. Um, Julian has not had the opportunity to even consider that new second superseding indictment. It was served on him the morning he turned up at court for the hearing on the 7th of September. So he hadn't even seen or read the indictment or been formally served with it and arrested on it until the morning he turned up at court. Again,
1: all I can say is it, it just goes to show how problematic this process is. Why the media in general, why aren't they asking about Assange's welfare in every government um, press briefing?
0: That is an excellent question that I ask myself all the time and is one for you all as journalists to ask. And frankly, the the obviously, we always get quite a bit of media coverage on this case, as we should do, because it is such an important issue for journalists. And, and it's worth underscoring, it, it's still is surprising to me that journalists don't identify their own self-interest in this case. Even if you don't like him, which, you know, all these people that make these character assessments of someone they've never met astounds me. Uh, But leaving that aside, um, this case is the most, well, as we heard in evidence from Trevor Tim and from Daniel Ellsberg, this is the greatest threat to press freedom of the century the precedent that is being set in this case. And it's worth remembering it. Not only is this the first time that a publisher and journalist are, is being prosecuted in the United States for under the Espionage Act for publishing classified information in the public interest, we are also looking at an indictment that covers receipt and possession. So even if you didn't publish the material, the fact that you received it and you you have it is enough to be criminally prosecuted. Trevor Tim said quite starkly, I think, during the hearing, he said you know the prosecutor was running this line this mis a line that completely misrepresents what the indictment is you know they c- they continued as you said mary um saying things like well no we're not prosecuting for publishing classified information we're publishing him for we're prosecuting him for publishing the names of informants and putting people's lives at risk now let me come back to that because that is just there is absolutely no evidence that even took place but Trevor Tim held him up on it and said, well, no, you're not. Look back at the indictment. This is for receipt and possession as well. And that effectively criminalises national security journalism across the board, whoever you are. But not only that, and this is important for MEAA members, the US has made clear they are going to discriminate against him on the basis of his Australian nationality. The fact he is a foreigner they are using that to say that he does not benefit from first amendment protections so what does that mean we have the united states seeking to ex- prosecute and extradite a publisher an australian publisher and journalist for inf- publishing truthful information about the united states for which is one journalism awards the world over not just at home um, and to bring him to the united states to face prosecution where he won't have constitutional rights because he is an australian now that that is not the front page headline of every
1: Australian newspaper is shocking to me. When the court process is finished, Jen, can, can Boris Johnson still prevent it? Unfortunately, after, after Theresa May stopped Gary McKinnon's extradition to the, to
0: the United States on human rights grounds, they changed the discretion that was av- previously available here in this country to, to, to stop on human rights grounds extradition requests. So, look. I have always said that this case is inherently political and that it requires a political solution. So I do think that it is possible for Australia to intervene. I do think it's possible for the United States to change its mind and I do think it's possible for the UK to take a stronger stance against this. And there could be a political there could be with sufficient political will there could be a political solution to this case that could shut it down because as we know it was a political decision to start it and it could be a political decision to stop it. We know the timeline of this case, and I think it's really important people remember it, which is, like I said, um, by the time Obama had left um, his presidency, he commuted Chelsea Manning's sentence, and we now know, though we didn't know them because of the secrecy of the process, that there was no indictment before Trump came to power. After Trump comes to power, WikiLeaks publishes Vault 7, the CIA publications. That provoked a response within the CIA from Mike Pompeo, who made a statement in April 2017, which was the famous statement where he called WikiLeaks a hostile non-state intelligence agency, that they would work to take WikiLeaks down and that Julian Assange and his cohort should not benefit from the First Amendment. That is precisely the case they are running. A week later, the Attorney General said it was a priority to prosecute him. We now know that the indictment came later that year um, after Julian refused to participate in a pardon deal that, that the Trump administration had come to offer. This case is inherently political and was one that has been driven by the Trump administration. And I think that the involvement of the security services who obviously have a very, we know what their opinion is of him. Um, that, That the agency that he has, the agency that he is responsible for the largest leak in their history is going to be making a decision about the kinds of prison conditions that he faces. And as we said, that means that he's going to be under special administrative measures, which is effectively incommunicado detention. A uh,
1: question about what the federal government's doing to help him, or nothing. Um, as far as I Well, know. please,
0: as MEAA members, ask them, because to <laughs> from our <that> perspective, <laughs> nothing. Um, and I think that there's an opportunity. There is a potential opportunity for the Australian government with the change of administration um, it has always been open to our government to seek to exercise diplomatic protection for Julian. He has. We have been disappointed by these by successive Australian governments' approach to this case. Whether we look back at the original Labor government when the WikiLeaks disclosures first took place, where they were looking to cancel his passport, um, Julia Gillard said that he'd acted unlawfully, which was not true. Um, you know, we had Labor governments, and we've had successive inaction from Liberal governments since then. Um, The Australian government, if we have such a great special relationship with the United States, there is no reason why we couldn't be raising concern about this precedent. Why couldn't the Australian government be calling up the Trump administration saying, listen, this is our citizen. This is a real problem for us. You can't do this. Can we find a way to get around this? Of course, it could happen. If the Australian government is able to get a, a convicted terrorist home from Guantanamo, How can they not sort out a problem for an award-winning Australian publisher and journalist?
3: That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Solidarity Breakfast will be going back live November the 14th, assuming nothing untowards happens. We might even have a new team member. With all that to look forward to, tune in and keep safe.